before we start this episode, I would like to add a trigger warning here. Depression is an incredibly serious mental illness, and as such, this episode will mention very serious topics. I will very briefly be mentioning suicide, substance abuse, shootings, and self-harm. While these are only short references and will not be expanded upon in any examples or graphic detail, if you are affected by the mention of these topics, this is definitely not the video for you. Take care of yourself and your mental health first and listen to another episode of ours or wait for our short fun facts episode coming out tomorrow instead. If that is the case, stay safe and I will catch you tomorrow. We would much rather that you don't listen to this episode or any one of our episodes if it has a negative impact on you and your mental health. If you know that listening to this will be a negative experience and in any way, shape or form, or you are negatively affected while viewing this, please stop immediately. As someone who has dealt with depression myself, I can attest to the fact that none of this information is important enough for you to jeopardize your mental well-being. So, with that out of the way, let's begin. And today we will be talking a little bit about depression, a very happy and cheerful topic. Mm -hmm. We will largely be focusing on adolescent depression as this is my personal area of interest as a neuroscience major. So descriptions of everything that I'm going to cover will be briefer due to just the sheer amount of topics that we have to cover today. Yeah, it's a lot. Strap in, this will be a long episode. First thing to mention is that depression is incredibly common, much more than one might think. About one in five teenagers have or have gone through depression, one in four women, and one in five men as well. And some estimations actually rank as high as one in two people in the U.S. as having had depression. Oh no, that's me. <laughs> that's both of us. Hey. So, what are the causes of this depression? It very much varies from genetics to your brain chemistry and how everything is wired to the situations in your life and how you react to those. We'll talk more about it later, but some depression can literally be caused by the changing seasons and others can be caused by giving birth and more still can simply be caused by your genetics or your brain just going a little out of whack. Many people have genetic predisposition to get depression, which simply means that they have the genes that would make them more likely to go through depression. This does not guarantee that someone with said high genetic likelihood of getting depression will actually get it, or that someone who doesn't have a high genetic likelihood won't. There are at least nine different types of depression, which I will be covering today, but as our understanding of this disorder evolves, so will the ways that we classify it. Scientists are still not totally sure what's going on at any given time. Just about every few decades or so, we have a new revelation saying, hey, all of the science that we published on this is wrong. Ah, man. Especially regarding the brain. It's great. Yeah. The nine different types of unipolar depression are major depressive disorder, or as I will be referring to it as MDD, dysthymia, double depression, postpartum depression, or PPD, Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, alternative depression, psychotic depression, seasonal depression, and situational depression. So I will be using the acronyms that I just mentioned for some of these, but I will try to rehash them at the beginning of each section. Just know that the most important one out of all of these to remember is MDD, or major depressive disorder. These are the nine types of unipolar depression, which simply means it's one state, 
and just kind of keeps going. And that's what makes it different from, as you've probably heard of, bipolar depression, which is a whole different topic to get into. So first up is major depressive disorder, or MDD. This often lasts for about a 32-week average, so just a few months, and it has often more pronounced symptoms than some of the other types of depression. This is often the type of depression that most people refer to when they say, I have depression, or talking about depressive studies. Mm -hmm. It's largely MDD, or major depressive disorder, that is studied. The most difficult part about MDD is that these symptoms range all across the board but often do lie in extremes. For example, you might have hypersomnia, which is oversleeping, or insomnia, which is not sleeping enough. (laughs) I just rapidly go between the two. I don't know. (laughs) That is also a symptom of depression. Oh, great. Thanks. Fantastic. Then you have hyperphagia and hypophagia, which just means overeating and undereating. Then you have loss of pleasure, lack of motivation, and anxiety. Hey. Because of its popularity, there's also quite a bit of misinformation about MDD. So misdiagnoses of MDD versus, for example, bipolar versus dysthymia and double depression versus other types of depression are actually more common than a lot of people might think. Mm. The other issue is comparing symptoms as, am I really sad enough? Am I hurting enough? And these negative stereotypes on social media and in the media in general, as well as the medical world, have a pretty detrimental effect on the way that the common person views their own depression and what they're going through in comparing their experiences. Although I will say that these delineations and research into these different types of depression has been getting a bit better over the years as more awareness about the disorder arises. The second type is dysthymia. This is rather under-researched, though it's getting better now, it's still not great on the information that we have about it. In fact, there are only two major studies that I could find on both Google Scholar and a uni research base that I used for this entire project that actually has to do with the differences between MDD and dysthymia. And I used a time window of 1989 and 2009, and there were very few published within the past decade. However, I will say, the fact that there are only two major studies on the delineations between MDD and dysthymia is pretty surprising since a lot of those symptoms overlap. In fact, if you look at how many research papers that I was able to find on dysthymia versus MDD, it was basically 1,422 total results published within the last few years for dysthymia versus nearly 68,000 for major depressive disorder, so there's a bit of a research deficit. Yeah, just a bit. It's the second greatest research deficit, trumped only by a type that I will be getting into right after this one. Aw, man. So dysthymia is something that people have for a longer period of time, usually three or more years. And the symptoms are often more muted than MDD. This includes muted emotions, such as the inability to feel happy or excited, compared to how you feel like you would normally react to a certain situation. As someone who was diagnosed with dysthymia, It basically meant that for me, I had a lack of normal reward system in my brain, so I could get a high score on a project or get praise from a teacher, which are things that I would usually love as a younger kid, and I wouldn't even register it just thinking, yay, I should theoretically be elated about this because it's in my personality, but I'm really not, and I'm just looking towards the future saying, oh yay, I have to do another project. Kind of a mood, but that's rough. Yeah. I was definitely drawn more towards negative feelings and less rewarding interactions with friends and others, and an emotional distance was definitely created between myself and my friends. And I felt it even when it wasn't really there or perceived by said friends of mine. 
these seem like pretty common problems, and they seem like, oh yeah, everyone goes that through high school. But when plagued with a lack of feeling genuinely excited or happy for any significant period of time for years on end, life really does begin to lose its luster, and mm -hmm. for me, I began to feel like the rest of my life will just be nothingness and unaccomplished aspirations, no matter how high I actually went. And it can take you to an incredibly dark place. Mood. People often don't understand dysthymia above a lot of other types of depression, and that's partially due to the modern culture of everyone's depressed and the world is just naturally depressing, which to an extent they're not wrong given the one in two mm -hmm. statistic that we were talking about earlier, but that's also unique to the United States, ah, thanks nice. to United States conditions. Haha. -ha. In fact, I actually had an easier time getting a rather biphobic relative of mine to accept the fact that I was bisexual than getting a person who not only went through severe depression and anxiety, but also studies depression-related mental health disorder in adolescence for his PhD to understand dysthymia. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people just have trouble accepting things they don't understand, especially if they mm -hmm. feel like they should understand, then they're like, well, I don't understand it, so it's exactly. not. The other difficult thing about dysthymia is that you have to display symptoms for over six months, if not even a year before you can get diagnosed, especially as a child. Yeah, but I think that's just a general problem with mental health problems, just because it is kind of hard to tell. Which is fair, however, I will also mention that you only have to be feeling the symptoms of MDD for a matter of weeks versus a matter of over a year mm -hmm. to get diagnosed, and this is why there is such a projected underdiagnosed rate that jumps those statistics up from 1 in 4 to 1 in 2, mm. as well as why there is such a high statistic of people with depression who don't actually seek treatment at all. Ugh. With the fun topic of dysthymia out of the way, let's get into the most under-researched version of depression, and this is known as double depression. This is a fun type because it is a combination of MDD and dysthymia. Yay! It's one of the harder types to diagnose and definitely has the greatest research deficit. And basically, when you have double depression, you experience the long-term, years-on effects of dysthymia, only throw a couple months of extreme depression so that you get that MDD in there. Haha, yay! It's, it's absolutely brutal, and personally, I do debate whether this might have been what I was going through at the time, but if it's anything like that, you basically go through months at a time where you feel absolutely depressed. You might not be able to get out of bed, you might be dealing with serious anxiety or insomnia problems, anything around the board, and then after that few months, you just go back to your normal muted emotions, and you're like, oh, I'm fine now. You're not actually fine. You're still dealing with depression. But relatively, you feel better. And because it takes so long to get those waves, that's why it's often underdiagnosed for people to realize, oh, it's a combination of the both and not just one or the other. Mm. Another type that is getting a lot more research recently is known as postpartum disorder, or PPD. This happens after you've had a kid, and this is due to a hormonal imbalance within a person's body. It can be a period of just a few weeks or a few months, but it can also last up to years, and the severity depends on that of a hormonal imbalance. So it can be something that's the more long-term but muted effects that you might see with dysthymia, or it could be the super severe effects and some of the even self-harm and suicidal tendencies that we see mm. more pronounced in people with MDD. Symptoms can often be exacerbated by the factors of 
you just brought a new human into the world. So now you have lack of sleep, the stress of caring for said new human, and all the wonders that arise from that. Yeah, that's kind of rough. Yeah, the stress... Like me in high school, but, like, worse by a lot. Add the stress of being a parent onto your new hormonal imbalance, and it's not great. The thing about this is that it doesn't necessarily have to happen after your first kid, or even after every kid that you have. It could be, for example, your seventh kid that breaks that hormonal cycle. Obviously, this is both an issue for, you know, the parent who has postpartum and the kid, as that parent needs help, but they're often already stretched thin. But it's also an issue for the child, because in the first few years growing up, having a mentally stable parent who is there for you is absolutely crucial to development. Mm -hmm. And I do want to emphasize that this is not the mom's fault at all. This is a hormonal imbalance, nothing in your control. But when you don't seek treatments for it, or when people fail to be diagnosed by their doctors or even by pediatricians, which I will get into later, especially when that case is severe and potentially their partner couldn't be a full-time parent, Having just one parent who sometimes can't get out of bed to take care of a child can kind of screw up dependency issues later on. Loads more research has been done into PPD within the past decade, and pediatricians are finally being made more aware of the signs of PPD in moms who come in with their young kids and babies for checkups. However, a huge issue that I will mention a bit later is the medical professional's ability to spot and treat these disorders, especially in kids. And these cases, more often than not, can go entirely unnoticed. I mean, I would argue, especially if you are non-binary or transgender, this can be a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Because doctors won't even think to look for that. However, even with cis female parents, it can still be an issue to catch and diagnose. Something a bit related to PPD is PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So this is a more severe case of what's known as PMS, or premenstrual syndrome, and this often has a genetic link. Also, a link with PPD, which is often genetic, so PPD will more likely exist if you give birth, and if you have a female relative who's close to you who has PPD, then you are much more likely to have either PPD or PMDD. Symptoms of this in particular are anxiety, fatigue and insomnia, agitation, and nervousness as well as physical symptoms like dizziness and fainting, as well as easier bruising. This is very likely due to the hormonal imbalance that goes throughout the body caused by the menstrual cycle, especially given some of the physical symptoms that very rarely accompany symptoms of, say, regular MDD or dysthymia. Then you have alternative depression, and this is a fancy name for when you have often MDD with basically the same symptoms, but the usual medication and therapy treatments don't work. Ah, not ideal. And because of that, there's a higher likelihood of addiction, drug usage, and self-harm, as well as unfortunately suicide attempts. A lot of doctors and physicians don't really even know that this type of depression exists, But it's also used as a catch-all for, oh, the regular cognitive behavioral therapy training and uh, medications don't work, so guess you've got alt depression and are out of luck. Sucks Ah, to be you. Great. Love that. Research into treatments is still being conducted quite a bit. And there's not a heck of a lot that's certain. And this is one of the lesser research depression types. Thankfully, though, a lot more interest has been garnered as this depression epidemic spreads throughout the United States and people are realizing, hey, our normal treatments don't work. Maybe we should try other methods. Yeah, perhaps. That's a big brain move there. Uh Uh-huh. 
One of what I think is the roughest types of depression to have, though, is known as psychotic depression. This is when you have schizophrenia, or a schizoaffective disorder, with a happy dose of depression. <laughs> this can range from that sort of muted dysthymia level to MDD level. And it's often accompanied by hallucinations, delusions, like delusions of grandeur or worthlessness, and everything across the board that you might expect from a schizophrenic or schizoaffective. Personally, I believe there needs to be a lot more research into it, and often it's caused by the fact that you have schizophrenia or a schizoaffective disorder, which mm -hmm. is hard to deal with in and of itself. Yeah. And so going through yet another mental disorder at the same time isn't really a plus. Not ideal. That brings us to seasonal depression. And this is where the brain is basically affected by the time of the year. So this is known as either summer onset seasonal depression or winter onset. The latter is a lot more common. So when you have winter onset seasonal depression, the most basic way to describe it is less sunshine makes brain sad. Yeah, I've heard that having to stay inside more and having less exercise could be some of the issues with that. Just because like the sun is a huge factor and it does give you vitamin D and so that could like mess with your functions. Given that moving and getting out of the house can actually help decrease the effects of depression in general, I really wouldn't doubt it. Mm -hmm. As well as the grayer weather, which tends to just have a chemical and emotional reaction within most people. Mm -hmm. Other issues that arise from winter onset depression in particular include hypersomnia and hyperphagia, which is just sleeping more and eating more as well as that stereotypical depression symptoms, similar to MDD or dysthymia. It's very different most of the time than people who have summer onset seasonal depression, who often act in an almost polar opposite way to those who have winter onset depression, again, generally speaking. So those with summer onset depression basically have a switch in their brain that says, more sun makes brains sad, it is more sun earlier, and I don't like this, and honestly, mood. Yeah. I liked being able to stay up until 5 a.m. and feel like it was still 2 a.m. and still dark outside, and that I hadn't stayed up all night reading. Well. I really need blackout curtains. Sometimes it's <laughs> like the heat really does not vibe with me. But those who have summer onset are more likely anxious and more often deal with insomnia and irritability which is basically the polar opposite of, for example, hypersomnia and hyperphagia, where you eat and sleep a lot more. Now you're often doing a lot less of that. These very often have similar symptoms to PMDD that we discussed earlier. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Yeah. Because there is such a short period of time that seasonal depression takes hold compared to, say, 32 weeks in a row for MDD or three years in a row for dysthymia, there's a much higher likelihood of misdiagnosis, and it can often be confused with bipolar or situational depression, which is coming up next. Yeah. So last but not least, we do have situational depression. And this is just depression that stems from an event in a person's life. It's often a trauma, like a death, losing a job, breaking up, really anything that a person can find traumatic. And again, People react to situations in different ways, so it could be something that one person considers very trivial, but the other person actually had a lot of emotional investment in it. Mm -hmm. So perhaps it's something as simple as being rejected from a college. I mean, for me, that was an emotional blow that I suffered many times over. Mm. And yeah. for many, it can have them go into some sort of an existential spiral, and 
for some, that situation can cause depression. The severity of that depression often varies with the severity of the event and its impact on that person, as well as the genetics that that person just has for their predisposition to having depression in general. And situational depression is something very important to recognize on its own, not only for the validation of the people who have situational depression, but also for the validation of people who don't. Yeah. Now that we've gone through some of the basic definitions, I'm going to review some of the differences in treatment methods. And quite frankly, there aren't many. Mm. One of the few variations is taking birth control to assist with symptoms of PMDD and sometimes PPD, so premenstrual and postpartum. There are loads of treatment experiments still going on today. The real problem is probably just that the complexity of the human brain some medication will help some people but not others because everyone's like chemical balances and their brains are different. Quite frankly, it's the two different brains can have something entirely different wrong with them, but we will still diagnose them with the same depressive disorder and give them the same meds because they are exhibiting the same symptoms. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you can have the same symptoms in parts of depression and maybe the after effects of a stroke or yeah. the same in especially, which I will talk about later, depression or autism, yeah. which can have very similar symptoms. One could stem from the other or one could simply be a symptom of another. And because of that, there are a lot of mixed diagnoses and a lot of different parts of the brain that can go wrong, but give you the exact same results. Woohoo! <laughs> it's great. As for some of the common treatment methods, there is a common method for seasonal depression, MDD, and dysthymia, which is often medication or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really used for most of the depressions in general. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy pretty much just helps a person reframe their mind and think about situations in a new light, as well as offer techniques to help get a person out of a panic attack or a severe depressive episode. This can especially be helpful for situational depression, so that if a similar situation arises, their brain won't have as severe of a reaction as it did before, and it can help a person yeah. manage any of their symptoms. For medications, these are often known as SSRIs, or Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, like Zoloft, or Sertraline, Prozac, or Fluoxetine, and Paxil, Peroxetine. And SSRIs pretty much say, okay, let's boost in this certain area of the brain the amount of serotonin and kind of happy chemicals that you get. Mm -hmm. And these don't often work well for atypical depression. That's where you get atypical depression from. Yay! <laughs> as its own category. Because sometimes it's not just serotonin levels that it's causing depression. Sometimes it can be one part of the brain is actually overproducing. And so then your brain just kind of goes numb to it. And other times it can be the lack of production. So it really depends on the person in the brain. So what about the quality of treatments that people are getting? Well, up until 2017, there was no psychology section on the MCAT, which is the exam you have to take in to get into med school regardless of whatever you specialize in. Yay! And because of that, basically no doctor who currently has a degree needed to know much about the psychology or psychiatry or sociology to get their degree, which can be pretty detrimental when a patient has symptoms stemming from a mental illness more than whatever that doctor is trying to treat. And oh obviously this isn't all doctors, but as I will showcase in an upcoming study, it is a fair amount of them. Pediatricians in particular faced a huge problem. 
in a 2007 study, which seems a little outdated because that was 14 years ago, mm-hmm. but still has quite a few effects today, it was revealed that about half of physicians surveyed across the United States, from rural areas to urban and everything in between, weren't confident when diagnosing kids with depression, and the same number didn't have a psychologist or a psychiatrist in their county to refer their patients to. Because only 40% of U.S. counties had a practicing psychiatrist in around 2010, and those numbers are dwindling due to a lack of interest in such professions. Not great pay, you need a PhD, there are more rules than there used to be, and most people who have it are near retirement age. But that's a whole other can of worms (laughs) for a different day. Many of these doctors were also not confident in what medication they prescribed that child. (laughs) Well, yeah, that tracks because I'm pretty sure I heard that a lot of the medications didn't have much better results than the placebo version. For some of them, it was better than the placebo version, but also medication only works about 50% of the time, if not less, even on adults. 56% of pediatricians were interested in attending conferences about kids' mental health diagnoses and how to better spot or treat them. However, it should be mentioned that 12% of pediatricians who answered the survey gave those conferences a hard pass and said they don't need to or want to know any more than they already do about child mental health. I love it. This aligns almost precisely with the 50-50 rate of medication working in patients, both adults and adolescents. In Mm. fact, only about 40% of kids with depression will actually seek treatment. Another thing of note is that in 2015, the National Institute of Mental Health's budget was cut to under $1.5 billion, which seems like a lot, but I will firstly say that cancer in comparison received over $5 billion that year, and this budget was given to the umbrella of all mental health conditions ranging from studying depression to schizophrenia to Alzheimer's to everything in between. That's so much, man. And with all that research being conducted, especially nowadays, there frankly does need to be a bigger budget, especially seeing that the budget was cut in 2015 Mm -hmm. to under $1.5 billion and lost quite a bit of money from that. It should be noted that in 2020, the budget was able to get as high as $2 billion, which was a huge step up. But by 2021, it was cut again to $1.8 billion, which most greatly impacted the research grant money that people would actually get to conduct these studies, as well as the research facilities that are producing more of these studies in general. Hmm. This was very likely due to COVID and some of the impacts that it had, which is entirely understandable. However, as 69% of funding went to research project grants and most of the rest of the funding that the National Institute of Mental Health receives goes into, for example, research centers and other forms of research, mm-hmm. it's not like millions and millions of these dollars are being taken and put into administrative duties and things that aren't directly having a positive impact on the mental health community as a whole. So the loss of these million dollars directly impacts the scientists and the researchers, such as my future self, from being able to have the adequate funding to actually research what we need to research. Mm -hmm. The next thing that I want to mention are diagnoses that are often paired with depression, and this will just be a very brief list. Forms of general anxiety and social anxiety in particular, as well as OCD, in addition to autism, ADHD, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Ah, so I have at least three of these. I'm winning! Oh, what a mood. I love winning the genetic lottery in every way. Woohoo! 
Well, it should also be noted that many medications for depression also treat anxiety, OCD, and PTSD because of the similar parts of the brain that these all affect. That can give you a good reason as to why they're often connected. Yeah. There are also a lot of misconceptions about depression, and I'm just going to go over a few of them. The one that I want to start off with is social media. We hear a lot of negative things about social media, and while it's true that there is a lot to be wary about, while social media may sometimes exacerbate or contribute to the effects of depression, there is very little research out there that credits it as any form of significant factor. In fact, many studies point to the contrary of social media being beneficial when used correctly. Support groups, especially on these social media platforms, are a main way to help. A study on schizoaffective individuals showed that spending more time in online support groups and in online counseling modules was correlated with a significantly improved mental health. In moderation, social media can also act as a great starting ground for people with dysthymia and double depression, especially those who also have general anxiety disorder or social anxiety, as mm. they can often have a more difficult time socializing with their peers, especially yeah. as adolescents. Mm. This, of course, comes with the caveat of social media addiction. In general, however, social media can be a far greater help thanks to these support groups and people who have done their research and can help lead the way. So as long as the person is at least slightly internet savvy and keeps an eye out for misinformation that the internet often spreads, it can do much more good than harm. Another misconception is has to do with the different presentations in gender. I will put this with the caveat that this more has to do with cisgender male and females is not enough research has really been done into transgender and non-binary people mm -hmm. who also just have their own set of worries and anxieties that just lead to a higher predisposition of having depression given often what they have to go through socially and just emotionally and personally. Yeah. So, partially due to gender norms and partially due to the different hormonal makeup of male and female brains, Depression does present slightly differently, on the whole. Depression in males is more likely shown through anger and aggression, while females kind of have that stereotypical sadness. And while women tend to more ruminate or focus in on the negative feelings that they have, men will often try and distract themselves so that they don't have to really focus on said negative feelings. Men are also more likely than women to develop alcohol and substance abuse problems, which is its own world of demons. <laughs> yeah. On the whole, women are just simply more likely to get depression, and it's more just because, especially in cisgender women or anyone who has those kind of female hormones, these hormones are triggered more by puberty, the menstrual cycle, birth, and even stressful events have been shown to impact women more so than men. Mm-hmm. Women are also more likely to have an accompanying eating disorder, which is definitely a noticeable physical change that can get a lot more women, well, more easily diagnosed than it can men. Yeah. Another thing to note is that on the lines of visibility, men are also more likely to attempt suicide. And without going into the details of how and how that varies per gender, men are also more likely to succeed due to their methods. Yeah which is incredibly tragic and one of the largest reasons why I believe presentation of depression varying by gender should be more widely studied. Mm -hmm. In a few experiments that I looked for in each of the different types of depression, some of the overarching, you know, non-medical treatment themes were very similar, but some of the methods of execution differed. So for example, MDD. A lot of the research pointed towards support, venting outlets, and resources like therapy being the most beneficial. This is because with MDD, you have an increased likelihood of feeling worthless 
compared to the other types of depression. So it's very important to have those safeguards, especially ahead of time, given the higher rates of self-harm and suicide within people who have this particular disorder. Mm. For dyslimia, support and therapy were again listed, but there was the added suggestion of more social practice. Especially in adolescence, kids with dyslamia were below average compared to their peers in their abilities to make friends and keep contact and socialize in general, especially more so in the eyes of their parents and other adults. Mm -hmm. And given that dysthymia's effects are longer term, working to be able to maintain those healthy relationships with peers, despite that lack of reward that your brain gets compared to a normal brain, really just mitigates the longer-term consequences of not having those connections and not building that safety net ahead of time, Mm -hmm. as well as just knowing how to cope with the world when you get out of high school. Yeah. For double depression, again, support and therapy, but there was an even greater emphasis on social practice for this one because kids with double depression had even lower scores on their ability to socialize with others. Oh, And... Since they do have those points when things go from bad to much, much, much worse, Mm -hmm. that safety net is, again, incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. As for those with atypical depression, again, social practice was a small mention, but validation and therapy were the main ones. And that's because these solid treatments like medication are incredibly hard to come by as ones that will work for people with atypical. Mm -hmm. And not all therapy might help, which is true for all depressions and any mental illness in general, but it is a route that I would personally recommend no matter what you're struggling with. Yeah. And just remember, as a caveat, that you don't have to stick with the same therapist or psychologist if things just aren't working for you. It is literally their job to help people. Clients leave all the time. There will be no hard feelings, no matter how much anxiety you feel about it. Coming from someone who had to do this and had extreme anxiety over it, I promise. I also highly recommend therapy. It's helped me a lot with not only like identifying ways to help get through things, but also certain things are a result of mental illness, but it is something that I can deal with and handle. Which entirely makes sense because with mental illness, there's always going to be that kind of footprint left over. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you get through that phase of MDD or dysthymia, it can always come back again, and it's not always easy. Yeah. And there are things that you deal with that neurotypical people might not necessarily deal with. But often they can be manageable, and being able to recognize that you're able to conquer that mental illness can be super empowering. Yeah. For postpartum depression, one of the most important things are support and validation as well as therapy. And this is because time is of the most essence for this. While it is true that left unchecked, depression of any sort can be incredibly dangerous or detrimental to that person and others around them potentially, those with postpartum depression who especially still have custody of their child or any child in general Mm -hmm. could potentially be, through no fault of their own, harming that child's well-being given that, especially within the formative years and within the window of zero to six months and even lasting into two years, a child's dependency and their form of dependency changes greatly depending on how often that parent is there for them. Even though they can have a completely normal, loving, supportive family life later down the line, if they don't receive that proper care and attention in those very early years, it can cause long-lasting problems that go basically until you die. Mm -hmm. Again, 
not necessarily that person's fault, but recognizing and getting treatment for postpartum depression is incredibly important. For those with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, birth control is the one unique method to it. And this is because not only does it kind of lengthen out your menstrual cycle in a way, in doing so, it also lengthens out those hormone cycles and can very much help regulate a lot of the emotions and really bodily changes that go with having that lovely monthly menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And again, it depends on the birth control because birth controls can have very different effects. So if you are considering this route, definitely do talk to your doctor. Yeah. As with any of this. Now, for seasonal affective disorder, again, you have supporting validation as well as resources and a venting outlet. And for seasonal affective disorder, the twist is that this illness can be frustratingly overlooked and difficult to diagnose as a medical professional, even though it's been pretty well known in the medical profession for years, mm -hmm. but it's even harder to explain to the average person. So one of the most validating things for someone with mental illness is knowing they're not crazy and that others believe them. So having someone to be that venting outlet and to say, hi, I believe you, I can validate this, and you're not just going crazy six months out of the year, mm -hmm. can be incredibly helpful. As for psychotic depressive disorder, there's very little that I could find on this in particular. And it's because it's such a devastatingly unique combination of disorders that has a very multifaceted treatment. One thing that should be mentioned is that support groups and online courses or therapy seem to have the best results, especially for those with schizoaffective disorder uh, in particular. But often treating the depression that goes alongside the psychotic depression has to come from treating whatever schizoaffective or schizophrenic disorder is going on first, or at least learning to manage and mitigate those symptoms. Lastly, for situational depression, the biggest thing is therapy, and that's because something triggered that depression, so the best course of action is finding a way to overcome it, whether it be by venting to a therapist or developing some techniques via cognitive behavioral therapy that can help you move on from that event. It should also be noted that scientists and medical researchers are more dedicated than ever to finding new treatments for depression that can help mitigate its effects, so there will be likely new research on these disorders coming out even within a matter of months, if not weeks. That could potentially drastically change what we know about any one of these disorders. Another treatment I'd like to mention here is animals, or more particularly pets. Pets can often be a major help, and while it should be mentioned that having a pet does not always work, it can definitely be a great incentive, especially for someone seriously going through it with depression. The fact that you have a pet gives you responsibility, so a reason to get out of bed and kind of live. When you have depression, sometimes living for yourself just doesn't really seem appealing at the time. Yeah. But when you have a little fuzzball or, you know, a scaly friend or a feathered friend that you can take care of and you can bond with, which is very different than bonding with another human, Mm -hmm. It can really give you that great boost of serotonin and give you that reminder to take your medicine or get up out of bed or, you know, to go outside every once in a while and give your dog a walk. Yeah. I know that animals can always help me a lot, like, even if I'm not doing great, then, like, if I see an animal or forget to, like, pet them, mm -hmm. that really helps me a lot. And anyone who has spent any time with me pretty much knows <laughs> that if I see a dog in the general direction I'm you going... You go towards it. <laughs> yeah. I will now ask to pet said dog. <laughs> It's not just that petting a dog can give you a great boost of serotonin, but it's also the fact that especially with pets, like dogs in particular, you have to do things that doctors will often recommend will actually help sort of mitigate some of those symptoms of depression. So for example, taking your dog on walks, 
can help you not only get outside, but get exercise. And getting exercise can actually have a pretty astounding effect on mitigating people's depression. Depends on a case-by-case basis, but I definitely find that having a more scheduled or regimented routine really helps when I was going through my depression. And just having that exercise, getting out and being active can get those endorphins flowing and help get your hormones regulated back to normal. Yeah. I've heard that like higher elevation tends to make people more depressed and possibly like makes the suicide rates higher. Is that true? Yes, actually. So higher elevation basically just means less oxygen, which as you might guess, it's very bad for your brain. (laughs) In fact, a privately funded ecosystem experiment accidentally helped prove this link between high elevation and depression. People were basically put into large glass domes in the desert in New Mexico for about two and a half years to see if they could recreate different ecosystems. This was a project to see if they could do something for colonizing Mars, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so, actually. And the issue with uh, these domes is that in one of the biomes, the oxygen got trapped in the walls and wasn't exactly reaching the people within it. Not ideal. Which made the oxygen levels similar to that at an elevation of 13,000 feet above sea level. Which, without translating into any other specific units, is a really high ways up. Yeah. If you've heard of 14,000ers, it's not that far below it. Because of this drop in oxygen, people started developing sleep apnea, which basically means that they would stop breathing in their sleep suddenly. Not ideal. Very deadly disorder as well as lethargy and muted emotions and fun signs of depression. Yay! And when those oxygen levels were fixed, everyone went back to normal. Most of the sleeping problems stopped, they weren't feeling as lethargic, and they went back to loving that they were there and loving their jobs. Interesting. Scientists agree that the high elevation is only a small part of why someone might become depressed or suicidal, but it is a definite risk factor that can increase the likelihood of becoming depressed. Yeah. More exacerbate the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Oxygen's important, guys. Woohoo! <laughs> One last thing that I want to touch on is the United States versus other countries. So as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, the United States has an alarmingly high depression rate compared to Europe. It's basically our number one leading cause of disability and suicide, especially among young adults between 18 to 25, which is incredible incredibly tragic. Yeah, not ideal. Not so much, no. Whereas in Europe, it's basically a 2% being raised to 5% that caused Switzerland to go into crisis mode. Woohoo! And I was sitting here in the time of reading that paper in the United States saying, wow, I wish that were us. Uh Uh-huh. And should we mention, though, that this might be partially due to culture. In Finland and some of the Nordic countries, for example, Their definition of happiness is bleaker and very different to that in the U.S. So their satisfaction levels might be what we might call a 3, but they would call a 10. Because they have different expectations and different societal standards. Mm -hmm. Additionally, countries like Japan often stigmatize mental illness, like depression, to a pretty seriously high degree. And often some of the side effects of mental health issues can be considered dishonorable, and so it's definitely underreported there. If you have the time, definitely look into hikikomori, or basically people who have shut themselves in their rooms, especially in adulthood, for years and years, if not decades on end, and have literally never left. 
These huh. cases can be incredibly tragic, and more often than not, families will literally hide that person away and stop talking about them because it is considered dishonorable to the family. They might still support that person financially or in whatever way, even through housing, potentially, but it is often a symptom of people who often live this lifestyle were potentially bullied in school or went through mental health issues. And so mm -hmm. you can start to see why some of these mental illnesses are seriously underreported. Yeah. Even so, the U.S. is still at the top of the charts for now, but why? This is due to our culture and even social media in an extent, as well as expectations of adolescence these days. We may not have pram school until 10 p.m. in Japan, but many elite high schools are experiencing depression epidemics due to the weight that they are putting on students. So that does explain, like, our school. Yeah, no, there's a reason why sophomore year gave me a nervous breakdown. <laughs> it was junior year for me. Ah, fun. Yeah, we, uh, we, we all had one. <laughs> yep. I had multiple in junior hey. year. <laughs> I would also wager that our feelings of safety and security at our schools has been incredibly diminished, especially given that of other countries. Just mm. given the sheer number of school shootings that we have here on a yearly basis. Yeah? The number of school shootings that we have here in one year is basically at least 10 times the amount of school shootings or shootings in general that they basically had in most of the entire Europe history in recent decades. Well, welcome to America, guys. And the way that a lot of Americans might deal with that is through humor, and it's kind of normalized, which definitely puts a weight on your mind. And if you go to a place like when my friend went to college in Ireland, she would make a passing reference to the number of school shootings in the United States or about how she felt with her own experience going through one herself. People pretty much looked at her horrified, like, I'm sorry, what went on in the United States? What the hell, guys? <laughs> Are you guys okay? You're not, and this nope. is why. <laughs> So obviously there's a lot to go into when discussing depression, and we really only scratched the surface here. We talked a little bit about the different types of depression, some of the symptoms, some of the ways that they can be treated, bare surface scratch of some of the misconceptions, as well as what it's like in the United States versus the other countries in the world, and why there's such an epidemic of depression recently. There are basically two pages of sources for this topic. Many. 12-point font times New Roman, two pages of them. So if you want to learn more about anything that I've discussed in this episode, I highly recommend that you look through them. They've been posted on our Twitter along with this episode, so you'll be able to find it there. Mm -hmm. Depression has garnered a lot more interest in the past decade, and especially within the past year or two in general. And it's something that I'm currently planning to spend my life researching. That's mm -hmm. the long episode. Yeah. And there's still a lot to learn about depression, and the human brain in general. So... For now, I guess, firstly, here's to the crazy discoveries about the brain that are right around the corner. Thank you to all, like, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, medical professionals who are working to help people with depression or finding new treatments, doing their best to help people with depression and other such mental health issues. As well as any parents or siblings, or even friends, teachers, etc., who have been there at support networks, for people with depression and who have spent, well, some of them countless hours poring over research papers to better understand it. You guys are the real MVPs. Yeah, we really do appreciate you all so much. And if you are listening to this for a friend or a family member you think is experiencing depression or you know is experiencing depression, we really thank you for, like, looking for resources on it 
and like trying your best to help them. Sometimes it can be difficult for a person to acknowledge their own mental health issues. I know you went through that and I've personally gone through that myself and it's definitely a more personal journey. But as someone who's also been on the other end of that and trying to help friends through those issues, such as getting Dan to therapy, (laughs) means the world to have friends like that. And thank you so much for listening to this. And if there are any resources that can help, we have loads of them listed, again, in our Twitter links, so you can look more into it yourself. Mm -hmm. They range from research papers to things that are a little bit easier to comprehend and not five pages of what am I reading. (laughs) Fair enough. Thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next week or tomorrow for our fun facts. Yeah!